Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. These are the words of God. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. Heavenly Father, We ask today for eyes to see and ears to hear your word. We expect that your spirit will do exactly what he was sent to do, which is to convict our hearts of righteousness. Father, we want to be your obvious children. We want to be the people who walk in that righteousness. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What are we doing, church, in view of God's mercy? What are you and I doing in view of God's mercy? What are we doing in view, uh, in view of the mercy that exchanged our sin for God's righteousness? Are we, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice? Are we becoming like the Holy One we claim to worship, as we learned we ought to do last week? Or are we taking lightly the riches of God's kindness, continuing to dabble in sin that grace might abound, all the while saying things like, well, we live by grace. This isn't a workspace thing. We don't live by law. Using that simply again and again as our excuse. Scripture tells us to whom much is given, much is expected. To whom much is given, much is expected. And as Christians, you and I have been given the greatest gift ever. We've been given pardon. We've been given life back from the dead. As I see it, if we truly recognize the depth of our brokenness, the depravity that we have, the the depth of our sin, and just how much mercy has been bestowed on us, we ought to always... uh, be willing to praise God through our lives. We ought to always show God honor through our choices and through our behavior. And yet every day, we have that choice set before us. Will we, in view of mercy, present our bodies as a living sacrifice? Will we do it? That choice is here today. Maybe this is exactly why the Lord's Prayer contains that great line that says, lead us not into temptation. 
There are two types of post-cross people, church. There are two types of Christians. I'm not talking about Christians and non-Christians post-cross. I'm talking about two types of people who claim to be followers of Jesus. One are those who, in view of mercy, persevere, those who hold fast, and those who stand firm. And then there are those who don't. Those are the two types of people that God has told us about in his word. There are those who do good and those who are selfishly ambitious. There are those who seek for glory and honor and immortality through Christ Jesus. And then there are those who reject that and return to their unrighteousness. There are those, and this is important. If you're a note taker, I would encourage you to write this down and give this some thought. We sing songs about, um, about how fear is no longer uh, having hold over us, and they are true. But I want you to think about the paradox of God's word. There are those, these are the right Christians, these are the true Christians, these are the ones that Jesus commends. There are those who fearlessly await eternal life. We fearlessly await the coming of Jesus Christ. After all, perfect love casts out fear, right? And yet those same people are the people who work out their salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2.12, and live in reverent fear during their temporary stay on earth, 1 Peter 1.17. Those are the people we are called to be. And then there are those who fearlessly await Jesus' return when they ought to fearfully await Jesus' return because all they will receive is wrath and indignation. Those are the people to whom God says, uh, depart from me, I never knew you. Even though they say to him, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this or that in your name? So the question that I ask at the beginning still remains. It becomes the question that we should ask ourselves every day. What are we doing in view of mercy? What are we doing in view of mercy? My hope is that our answer will be threefold. One, that we will humbly walk in righteousness versus hypocritically walking in unrighteousness. Number two, that we would would not just hear God's word, but we'd also be doers of God's word. And we're going to see that today. And third, that our lives would show the covenant promise of God. Do you know what the covenant promise of God is? A circumcised heart. So today, as we continue in this journey through the book of Romans, transitioning from chapter 1 to chapter 2, I have some specific insight that I hope to share with you. The first insight has to do with judgment, specifically uh, with regard to judgment from a place of hypocrisy. By the way, just so you know, this is the only judgment in Scripture that we are prohibited from practicing. We are not to judge people in hypocrisy. We are called to judge rightly. We are called to judge righteously. We are able to determine people by the fruit that is produced in their life. We are able to see who is a Christian by their love for one another. The world is apparently even able to do so. Right, So we are to judge, but we are not to hypocritically judge. So I hope to show you some insight first in our judgment. The second, in, uh, in insight in being doers of God's word and not merely hearers, which obviously fits in this in view of mercy question. And finally, the circumcision of the heart, which is the true sign of our covenant promise with God. So let's jump in. If you have your Bibles, again, we're going we're gonna to root ourselves in Romans chapter 2, but for the beginning, just flip back one page to Romans chapter 1. Although it should go without saying, the Apostle Paul is writing to Christians. We get that, right? 
In two verses, in verse 6 and 7 of chapter 1, he refers to these Christians four different ways, and I love these references. He calls them, one, the called of Jesus Christ, two, the beloved of God, three, called as saints, and the fourth, which is my favorite. He says, grace and peace to you from God, our Father. I love that because the Apostle Paul, who uh, many you know, scholars and theologians would say is, is the epitome of Christianity. He is the guy that we should, we should look to as he imitates Christ, but he's the guy. Uh, he identifies himself with these Christians, the God, our Father. After greeting them and telling them how much he longs to finally meet them, Paul shares a piece of doctrine that had to be challenging. It had to be challenging. The truth is that many in today's church culture don't even accept it. They don't acknowledge it. Here's what Paul says, Romans 1.18. Read it with me. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. I just want to put your, put your mind in the 21st century church. And the pastor stands before you and he says, Hi, my name's Nathan. I'm the pastor here. We're really glad that you're here. If you're new with us, we'd love for you to fill out a welcome card. And, uh, and we'd love to get in contact with you about what our church is like. It's going to be really cool. We encourage you to be with us. So, without further ado, here's the message. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. You know what happens in most American churches today? People walk straight out the door. They don't like this, but this is a heck of a way to kick things off if you're, if you're a pastor. Paul goes on to say uh, from verses 18 to 32 a lesson that we learned last week, that we become like what we worship. If we worship anything other than the God of righteousness, we become like that. And if God alone is righteous, we become unrighteous, right? We become like everything else we worship. God's wrath is going to be poured out on all such unrighteousness. Now, for some of you, you need to hear this. This is the Apostle Paul, and it is the New Testament. This is the Apostle Paul, and it is the New Testament. This is post-resurrection, and he's still warning of the coming wrath of God. So, just take that and Deal with it sometime. Also, peppered throughout his dissertation, Paul makes, uh, Paul makes sure that we know that no man has an excuse for rejecting God. This is not a fun pastor to be under, okay? Francis Chan once said that if Jesus was the pastor of your church, you would leave your church. If Paul was the pastor of your church, you would leave your church. Maybe that's why people have left our church. Anyway, but it's okay. I'll keep going. He says things like this. That which is known about God is evident to them. Because he made it evident to them. Wow, that's pretty bold. Then he goes on, he says, God's divine attributes have been clearly seen. Not just seen, clearly seen. You have no excuse. And then he ends this bleak picture of the human condition with verse 32. Look at what he says. And although they know the ordinance of God, the specific ordinance they know follows. He says, although they know the ordinance of God, not ordinances of God, but the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. This is Gentile who doesn't have the law, and this is Jew who is under the law. They knew the ordinance that death was coming for those who practiced unrighteousness. Paul points to the wrath of God, that, it, that we are awaiting that, and that people are not practicing things uh, of righteousness, but rather unrighteousness. Not only that they're practicing it, they're promoting it. And with that step, he transitions into chapter 2. Look at what he says, chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, 
you have no excuse. Who's the you, church? It's Christians. It's Christians, make no mistake. He is talking to people just like you and I. What he teaches here should serve as a loving wake-up call to anyone who wants to live in view of mercy. It's a wake-up call. If God is disciplining you still in this day, church, don't look at it as uh, a picture of the wrathful God that your preacher told you about. Look at it for what the Bible says. It is a loving God who is calling you to righteousness. A loving God who has said, I'm giving you, I'm giving you time. I'm giving you a shot. Be, be my representative in this world. Live in light of my mercy. So, God calls them to this, and Paul is calling them in a bit of a wake-up call to live in view of mercy. And the first idea that we have to look at is this idea on judgment. And I hope that the insight I bring today will help you. I'm not trying to be, um, I'm not trying to be novel or new in this. What I'm trying to do is get at the heart of what the Scripture actually says. So, starting at verse 1, going through verse 4, follow along with me. Therefore, you have no excuse. There's a people group he's talking about inside of the subset of Christians. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. But make sure you don't stop there, because Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, woe to you, those who judge. No. It's those who judge a particular way. Look at verse 2. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. He's referring to unrighteousness. Verse 3. But do you suppose this, O man? And here's the definition of judgment that he is getting at. When you pass judgment on those who practice such things, unrighteousness, and do the same, unrighteousness, yourself that you will escape the judgment of God. He just, tell, he just asked Christians a very important question. Do you think you'll escape the wrath of God if you're a hypocrite? Do, do you think that? Because you need to think again. Verse 4, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Although Paul is talking to Christians clearly, Judgment is the action that's on display. It's a kind of judgment, the kind of judgment that Paul is really trying to take aim at. The kind of judgment is a judgment in hypocrisy. Paul doesn't stop with everyone who passes judgment, and neither should you. And neither should you allow that to be the criticism of the world. Doesn't your Bible say don't judge? Not in context. No, it doesn't say that. It actually says don't judge and be a hypocrite about it. Instead, he goes on to say that there's no excuse for those who pass judgment while doing the very same thing that they are judging. According to this text, what's the excuse the hypocrite is without? Avoiding judgment. That's, they don't get that excuse. Well, I'm just going to bypass this. I'm saved by grace. Everything's good. No, 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 no. God, God's word says that he will reward all of us according to our deeds. And in case you think that that's just an Old Testament model and not New Testament, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 with me. This is a little bit off of my reservation here, but 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. Look at this. Therefore, we also have as our... Uh, that's, yeah, chapter 5. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him, to be pleasing to God, right? This is the ambition of the Christian. Look at what comes next. 
For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Don't don't buy into the nonsense that you will not stand before Christ Jesus. You will stand before Christ Jesus. And if your life is a life lived out of faith, in faithful obedience to him, there's, there's glory in that. But you live by faith, right? But faith that has no works, faith that doesn't respond to his mercy, is a joke. And so Paul calls these people out. In this church, judgment, uh, judgment with hypocrisy or inside of hypocrisy is dangerous. It's unrighteousness. And this is not fitting for those who claim to live by mercy. As a matter of fact, Paul says that they think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and tolerance and patience. Those who do so, they are people who want to continue in sin that grace might abound. So just a quick second on this. We live in a strange church culture where people say the same statements that the world says, and that is, nobody's perfect. Duh. Thanks. We needed you to offer your your thoughts there. We know that nobody's perfect, but we have been bought at a price, haven't we? And and we're no longer our own, are we? And so, although Although nobody's perfect, we have been given a spirit that allows us to live a godly life, right? You have been given everything you need pertaining to life and godliness. That's what the Bible tells us, right? So the Christian loves to jump out now, the modern Christian loves to say, yeah, but nobody's perfect. Or when somebody calls out their sin, the response is, well, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Yeah, yeah, you missed a whole section on repentance, right? Do you know, how many of you know that we are living in continual repentance as Christians? Every day of our life, we get transformed more and more. It's called progressive sanctification, right? Every day, we become more and more like the Savior who purchased us. And guess what? Not until the day we see him face to face, does the scripture say we will be transformed totally like him. So, as far as that goes, we're all on a journey, aren't we? We're all on a journey. And, and tomorrow, you may completely mess this whole thing up, right? You may fall short. Are you going to be condemned to hell because you make one mistake? No, 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 no. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not saying that you have, you have the potential in your one action or in your disobedient moment to, to ruin your relationship with God. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that if your life is a hypocritical life, that you, you bank on God's grace, but you live any way you want, you're not who you claim to be. You're not who you claim to be. And so the church today has adopted this idea that says, well, nobody's perfect. You know what the church ought to do? In tears, go back to repentance. That's what we ought to be. We ought to be a people marked by repentance So Paul tells us that those who who think lightly of God's kindness and tolerance are those who continue to sin and they bank on grace. Yeah, this isn't a workspace faith. Yeah, but this isn't that. This isn't that. I remind you, the gospel is opposed. I've shared shared this many times. Dallas Willard once said that the gospel is opposed to earning. You cannot earn your way to God. But the gospel is not opposed to effort. God has called you to live out a godly life. He's called you to honor him and to respect him and to be obedient to him. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Look at this. 
Or do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness, or the riches of his kindness, and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Do you notice something very important about this passage? It's quoted by Christians all over the world today. It's a warning. It's a warning. This is not a passage that you get to go around going, hey, kindness leads to repentance. Kindness leads to repentance. You're reading it wrong. Paul used it as a warning. He said, what are you doing? What are you doing? Don't you understand? Don't you understand, hypocrite? God's kindness led you to the place you're in right now, and that's how you're going to repay him? That's how you're going to treat him? It's a warning. So give me a few seconds so that I can offer some clarification on this. And a few seconds to take a drink. Wow. The modern man-made doctrine that, go, it, that goes around the church says something like this. Be kind to all people and they will repent. Be kind to people. Go up and sh- open the door for them. And all of a sudden, the idea is that they're going to give their life to Jesus. This is total nonsense. Should we be kind as Christians? Yes. If you're not, I'll find you, okay? But we should be kind, but that's not at all what the scripture says. If you go into our world and you simply show kindness to a stranger, nothing happens, at least not for the gospel's sake. Nothing happens for the gospel's sake. They may express appreciation. They may repay your kindness with kindness. If they're an unkind person, it might just go unnoticed, right? But kindness doesn't do anything. Let me ask you a question. If the Christian church goes out and performs what we often have coined the phrase of as random acts of kindness. They made a movie about this years back called Pay It Forward, right? You remember this? Okay, so let's say the Christian church goes out and performs a bunch of random acts of kindness. But the Muslim church also goes out, the Muslim synagogue also goes out and performs random acts of kindness. By the way, they do. It's a a plan now, okay? That's their strategy. Uh, Whose God leads them to repentance? It's a stupid question, but it's just what my mind goes to. Whose God leads them to repentance? People are not transformed by mere kindness. I know that this is going to stir the pot a little bit, but God's word does not say kindness leads to repentance, so erase it from your head. Kindness does not lead to repentance. God's kindness leads to repentance. Kindness does not lead to repentance. Paul is also not saying something else. And this is so awesome because all of us have fallen victim to this. Paul is also not saying that if you will simply not judge the rest of the world when they are in sin, then you will show them the right kindness that will lead them to repentance. Paul is not telling you not to judge. Paul is not telling you not to judge. The modern MO of the church says, well, we're going to go in and I'm going to not judge my my." friend at work is operating, living their life in sin, but I'm not going to judge. And guess what's going to happen? In my non-judgment, they're going to see the kindness of God and they're going to come to Jesus. Bull crap. It's not going to happen. It's not what happens either. That's not what the Bible said. Paul actually is, is dealing with Christians. He's not dealing with the rest of the world and he's not talking about your problem with judging. He's talking about your problem with hypocrisy. Paul reminds Christians who are being hypocrites that God's kindness led them to repentance and they should therefore stop sinning. Oh, I love it. It makes me so happy. 
He warns them to think hard about their hypocrisy. Why? Because judgment's still coming. Church, God's judgment is going to fall on the unrighteous. But here's where the gospel paints such a beautiful picture. God's kindness is this. His righteous justice fell on someone. Jesus Christ. His righteousness, his, or his justice fell on the righteous one, Jesus Christ. He became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. God's kindness is a fixed thing. It doesn't look anything like your kindness, even if you're a really good Christian. It's not to be understood through this modern perversion of eternal niceness. That's not what God's kindness is. Not at all. God gave his son for you and me. That's his kindness. Full stop. God's kindness is so, again, it's holy. It is unlike our kindness. This is why, church, the gospel must be proclaimed. We, we love to help our neighbors. That's great. When is the last time you told them about Jesus? And, and listen, I'm not, I'm, I'm not judging you right now. I know that that sounds funny that I mentioned that. I'm not condemning you is what I mean. All of us are called to go into the world and preach the gospel. All of us are called to do that. We do it in different ways. We do it in different ways. But listen, as I've harped on before, Francis of Assisi's statement, right? Go into all the world, preach the gospel, and use words if you have to. You have to. It's a message, right? Otherwise, what you have is human kindness. Even if you know in your mind you're doing it for Jesus, it's human kindness, but it doesn't lead people to repentance. But when you tell them the gospel message, all of a sudden, their lives are transformed. Or at least, they have to consider what God has said. Most of us are kind, and that's great, but our kindness, we're hoping, is some sort of rabbit's foot, some sort of magic thing that we're hoping will change people's lives. It, it doesn't happen, church. It doesn't happen. So what are we doing in view of mercy? Hopefully, judging righteously. Hopefully, we are participating in what I would call humble righteousness. Matthew 7 paints the, a great picture of what this looks like. Um, Jesus says, don't judge, Matthew 7. He says, don't judge. And we're like, oh, that, that means we shouldn't judge. And then the story teaches the context. He says that if you're, if you're a person who has a log in your eye, you guys know this story, right? If you have a log in your eye, what are you supposed to do before you worry about the twig in your neighbor's eye? You're supposed to remove your log. But here's the, again, misidea, misconstrued ideas of the scripture. Matthew 7 does not say do not judge. It says judge when you're not a hypocrite. It says take the log out of your eye so that you may see to take the twig or the stick out of your neighbor's eye. We have no, we've made up so much crap. It's unbelievable. Sorry, I'm fired up. Oh, it drives me nuts. Matthew 7 is the perfect example of judgment without hypocrisy. You, you start with humility. You start when, when somebody accuses you of something, and I'm no good at this, so pray for me as well, but I'm striving for this. But when somebody accuses you of something, the first question that we should ask, and this doesn't have to be a long court battle in your head. It can go over in a couple of seconds. But the first question that you should ask is, is there any merit, merit to, this, to this accusation? What do you have to lose if, if there's no merit? What do you have to lose if you're, if you're right? You have nothing. 
But you should ask yourself that question. Is there any, is there any validity to what this person is saying? And then if you know that the answer is no, then you can move forward with compassion. You can move forward with assurance. And then in that moment, you can address the issues that are facing you, right? We need to be a people of humble righteousness. Number two, being doers of God's word and not just hearers only. So after reinforcing that God is impartial, Paul says this, Romans chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, follow along. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Again, he's reinforcing the impartiality of God. All he is saying there is God's judging everyone, it doesn't matter. He's not even weighed in on law and grace yet, okay? But he goes in verse 13 and he says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law who are justified. You see, in Jewish circles, what happened was they were, they were taught that they held a place of preference in some ways, right? Due to having received the law. Paul is saying that it doesn't work that way. And Paul, as a Jew, had to come to grips with that himself. And then when he tells other Jews that, he had to take their steely, daggery stares, right? He had to know that they hated him for saying this, right? But you, you were re- recipients of the law, but it doesn't mean anything. Being a child of Abraham wasn't the guarantee. It was being a child of the promise that was a guarantee. And being the child of Isaac or the child of faith or as we live by faith, that's what it means to be a part of God's covenant kingdom. We struggle with this in the church today as well. Many ways, right? We were raised in the church. Our families taught us good religious things. We've been baptized. So therefore, I can continue to sin that grace might abound. No, read the Bible. Trust me, you will not come to that conclusion. But are we anything like the one that redeemed us? That's the question we ought to ask ourselves every day. Are we hearers or uh, practicers of religious duties, but not doers of God's word out of obedience through faith? James, the brother of Jesus, says it this way to his Christian audience. Listen to what he says, James 1, 21 and 22. You just have to listen. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourself doers of the word. Receive the word that's implanted. Well, Nathan, that's just the gospel, and I believe that by faith. How can you do the gospel? Oh, because the gospel includes obedience. That's what he calls you to. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers. Who, James, who delude themselves. You see, we ask this question all the time. What are we doing in view of mercy? And I'm asking it a lot today, and I've been asking it a lot throughout the week. And the, question, the, the answer cannot be, well, I'm, I'm deluding myself. I'm, I'm, make, I'm playing make-believe. I'm acting like Jesus loves me and that I love him, but I'm not going to do a dang thing, he says. That's not what a Christian does, Right? That's a dangerous position. So, in view of mercy, what does this look like? It means a true life of faith. A true life of faith. I want to paint this picture for you, and then I'll go into um, our last section and wrap up. But um, God has not changed how he makes covenant promises. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, he's not changed. It's actually exactly paralleled if you think it through. Okay, so who was the first covenant promise made with? It was, well, first covenant promise of a people made with, it was made with Abraham. 
right? God calls Abraham, so, so it starts with God's calling. It's a, it's a merciful election, as we like to say, according to the New Testament, right? And so God calls Abraham. Abraham has to make a decision. He has to respond to God through what? Faith, right? He has to respond in faith. God makes the call. Abraham responds in faith and says, I'm in with you, Lord. And guess what the Bible says? It says Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Do you know what happened after righteousness was credited to him? He took on the sign of circumcision. That's the covenant sign of his being, them being the people of God. He took on that. You know how many years later the law came? 430 years later. Was the law ever a part of making the promise with God? No, it wasn't. But obedience was expected because why? Because God chose you, you responded in faith, you're marked by a covenant sign, and he calls you to obedience. Now let's go to the New Testament. God, through Jesus Christ, according to Ephesians 1 and 2, says before the foundation of the world, he, uh, he chose us in Christ Jesus. That's an important distinction. He chose us in Christ Jesus. All are chosen in Christ Jesus, right? And so he chose us in Christ Jesus. He wants that none should perish. And so he beckons a response. That response comes in faith, doesn't it? Faith. I have no idea what was happening there, right? That response comes in faith. Okay, so I don't even like you people. Anyway, so anyway, I'm the one who made fun of myself. I don't even know what's going on. Anyway, so the... We respond in faith, right? And then there's a covenant promise. There's a covenant sign, which is our next point, which is that God circumcises your heart. Your heart, stony mess that it is, becomes made new, right? And then guess what flows out of that heart? Obedience. It's amazing. God didn't change a dang thing. He didn't change anything, right? Even to Abraham, who was the promise? The seed that was Jesus Christ. People in the Old Testament were saved because they looked forward to a coming Messiah. And the people in the New Testament are saved because we look back on a, a sacrificed Messiah and are a coming again, Jesus. Amen? So it's amazing how all of this stuff works. God has not changed. We are to be a people of covenant promise, right? This is where we get to circumcision of the heart. So we've, we've got doers of the word, we've got humble uh, righteousness, but now it's all about being circumcised of the heart. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God." Make sure you know God knows your heart. He, kn he knows what has happened and what has not happened. Scripture tells us that out of the heart the mouth speaks and also tells us that we are to guard our heart for out of it flow the issues of life. So with the heart being the epicenter of pretty much everything that's going on, it's no wonder God's true sign of covenant promise is that he has to circumcise our hearts. That's where everything in life flows. Some people have really sophisticated filters in our culture. They, they perform good religious duties. But you and I know the difference when somebody is doing something. You can see it when somebody is doing something because their heart is truly transformed. If you don't know this, have children. You'll see it really quick, right? You, you know when your children are doing something out of obligation or whether or not they just genuinely want to show their love for you or their compassion. It's an amazing thing. And the same is true for Christians. In view of God's mercy, what does this look like? Well, again, 
This is where we have a true life of faith. So in, in the first one, we have humble righteousness. We have judgment without hypocrisy. That's how we live in view of God's mercy. The second one, we live in view of God's mercy by becoming doers of God's word every day. That's a progressive sanctification. It's, you know, we grow in obedience. And the third is that we live a true life of faith. We trust what God has said. So what are we to do in view of God's mercy? And this is how we're going to end. If the worship team can come on up and Mark, you can run and get the kids for our time of communion. But, but here's what I want to do. And the kids can be a part of this. If you see your kid, please, you know, call them to you. But uh, we've told you guys, and for anybody who's new here, we've told you that the reason we're changing up communion is because we do want, even if our children have not accepted Jesus, even if they have not given their life to follow him, we want our kids to see um, all of the evidences of our faith, including going back to that table and remembering every Sunday that, that Christ's body was broken for us, right? And his blood was shed for us. So that, for anybody who's new, that's why our kids are coming in. But so what are we going to do in view of God's mercy? Well, I hope the answer is not we're going to take it for granted. I hope it's not. I hope we don't say, well, I'm just going to continue to sin because, well, grace has covered me. Time out. Is that how you treat grace? That's the better way you should look at that. Is that how you respond to grace? By thumbing your nose at it, by rejecting what God has called you to do. You see, if the answer is, uh, is that you're going to ignore it, God is calling you to a place of repentance. He's calling you to this place. And so here's, here's what we're going to do before we take communion. The first thing that we're going to do is we're, as a church, we're going to practice what all Christians should practice every day of their lives. In the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. How often do you need bread? Every day, right? Awesome. Look at what comes next. Forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It might be that you need forgiveness and you need repentance every day of your life. But here's my point. What we need to do as Christians is we need to get back to this this, um this uh, exercise of repentance, right? We need to come to God and we say, God, even if there's something I don't see that is unclean in my heart, I'm sorry. Can you all say that with me? I'm sorry. I know it's the most horrible two words in the English language, right? But we need to be saying this to God all the time. But here's why we say it to God, because we believe something very powerful about him. He says that if we will confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. The modern church has stopped repenting, and here's what I believe it says. The modern church has stopped repenting, and what I believe it says is that we don't believe God is faithful and just to forgive us. So we're playing charades. We're acting in front of God like we've got it all together. How many of you, by show of hands, have it all together? <laughs> exactly, right? So it's really important. And so repentance is lacking because we've forgotten who God is, faithful and just to forgive you of all righteousness. So for a couple of seconds as the band plays as they do this, what I want you to do is I want you to get by yourself okay? You can do that at your chair you can kneel at your chair, you can sit there, bow your heads, close your, close your eyes, not because we're performing an experiment on you, but because I want you guys to, to find an alone place and I want you to say God, if there's anything unclean in my heart, if there are things that I have done that I don't even know I'm sorry. Remember that. 
Not, God, I know that you love me and never get around to it. Think about it. Husbands and wives, would you accept that? If your husband offended you, would you accept it if he just came up to you and kept saying, I know you love me, I know you love me? No, you'd say, come on, out with it. I'm sorry. It's an amazing set of words. God deserves to hear it right? He is worthy. So let's just take a couple of seconds. Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes and let's ask God to forgive us of all of our unrighteousness. and a mercy that says to your children when we mess everything up that we can come back to you and we can call on your name and you will faithfully forgive us. You will love us that you will continue to pour out your blessings on us. Father, we thank you for that and we also thank you, Lord, for your warnings, for the things that you say to us, albeit in love, Lord, but the things that you say to us that draw us back from the, from the waywardness that we have followed, from the foolishness that we have pursued. God, you are so good. You love us so much, and we're amazed by that. And so, Father, in view of that, God, we are sorry. We are sorry when we break your heart. We are sorry when we run the other direction. We're sorry when we get uh, short-tempered or frustrated with other people knowing that your kindness and your mercy are so much bigger. Father, we ask for your forgiveness. We ask that you would, you, you would restore us, that you would make us new. God, we want to come back to that place where we believe about you what is true. You are faithful and you are just and you forgive. You are faithful and you are just and you forgive. So, Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for giving us the opportunity to come to you in repentance. And we ask, Lord, that you would draw our hearts to more of this on a regular basis. That, that we, we would be drawn back to the reality that you are a good God who's faithful. And therefore, admitting our wrongdoings and admitting our shortcomings is not burdensome and it is not oppressive. But it is, it is glorious and joyful because the weight has been removed from us. We praise you and we thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.
So church, as we go from here and we ask that question, what should we do in view of mercy? The answer, the answers are at least partly humble ourselves and walk in righteousness. Be doers of God's word and not merely hearers. And last but surely not least, display that your hearts have truly been transformed. Display that that act of covenant promise has been made with you by revealing the heart that God has put in you by being his servant and by being the person he's called you to be. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.